Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath and welcome to worship at Renewal. We're, we're glad you're here. Do we have anybody here that's coming to Smart Start? Raise your hand. Let me see you. Come on. Welcome. We are glad you're here. That's right. Welcome. Good to have you here. Excellent. And welcome to all the other guests as well, wherever you might be from. It's good to be together on, in God's house on God's Sabbath, worshiping together. This summer, we are doing a series called Standing on the Promises. And the promise we're focusing on today is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll get to that in just a, a couple of moments here. But for now, let's, let's start off with a prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we just praise you for the privilege of worship and even the greater privilege of being yours and all that comes with that, eternal life, salvation, healing, help. So as we take a few moments to dig into your word, we pray that you'll do what you've promised, and that is pour out your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Give us humble and teachable hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I enjoy hiking. Anybody else here like to take a good hike? So for me, since I like hiking, I'm always on the search for a good trail. Now, my definition of a good trail may or may not be the same as yours. For me, a good trail includes something to, really nice to go see, like a big waterfall, or even better, a big view off the top of a mountain. That's a really good hike for me. So I'm always looking for one. And several years ago, my wife and I found one, Whiteside Mountain. Anybody ever hiked Whiteside Mountain? Oh, I don't see very many hands. You have a good hike ahead of you. One of the things that makes this hike a really good hike is you can drive almost all the way up to the top. It's only about a two-mile two loop around, and you have incredible vistas all along that ridge there. Just an incredible hike. Well, this last March, uh, my family and I were doing this hike during spring break. Oops, what did I just do? Sorry, Oop, there we go. Enjoying the views. And it gets all the way up to 4,930 feet. And for East Coast standards, that's pretty decent. So that's a good, good view there. But I came across this sign here while we were hiking. And I decided this time to slow down, take the time to read the story there. It's called Daring Rescue. And since I've read that story on that plaque, I've read it in several different places to try to put together what really happened that day, May 1911, Apparently, there was a group of teenagers and maybe a couple 20-somethings that decided that they were going to take a picnic up on top of Whiteside Mountain. Apparently, there was a carriage, a horse and carriage that took some. Some just hiked. And they took all their food along, and uh, they were, the plan was just to have a great day together. Well, as it so happens, a guy by the name of Gus was wanting the attention of Irene. That's what was going on. And so he was telling all these stories about his job that he used to do. And Irene was paying all the attention to someone else. And Gus was not happy about this at all. The story says he had some whiskey along and he started sipping on the whiskey and getting more and more withdrawn and feeling frustrated. And anyway, at some point, they got to the top of the mountain, got to the picnic area and apparently Gus got this great brainstorm under the influence of alcohol, I'm sure, and decided that he was going to go out 
and pretend like he was falling off the mountain right there on that spot. It's called Fool's Rock. So Gus goes out there and starts going like this, like he's falling off the mountain. And some of his friends were worried about him and went and grabbed his hands and started dragging him back. And he fought his way away from them, went back to his spot and then tripped and fell off Whiteside Mountain. It just so happens, someone drew this picture for us to help us understand a little bit better. He was standing on top of Fool's Rock. There's a 15 foot drop where he hits this embankment below that's at a 30 degree angle. And he rolls down that embankment and gets caught in a rhododendron bush right there, dangling 1,800 feet above the valley floor. Well, at that point, everybody's frantic. They decide to go find Charlie. I guess Charlie was the guy to, to be helpful at this point. Charlie was, after all, the senior person there. He was probably 20-something. He he's married. He, he just got married four months ago to an 18-year-old bride. They went and got Charlie. So Charlie came to the situation, assessed the situation, and decided he was going to try to go help his friend Gus. So he found a route that they call the safe slope. Now, I'm not sure what looks safe about any slope around there, but... Charlie found the safe slope, which was not right where Gus was, but it was a little ways away from where Gus was. And he very carefully, I guess it wasn't as steep as the other areas, very carefully scrambled his way down to where he got completely parallel with Gus. And then the accounts I read said he had to, to get across a sheer cliff with hardly any places to put his feet or his hands, just minute little holes and cracks to try to put his hands and his feet in. Meanwhile, his four-month bride is up on Fool's Rock looking down, screaming hysterically, scrambling carefully across to help his friend Gus. Well, the story says that he successfully made it to Gus, grabbed Gus off the rhododendron bush and got him up on his shoulder somehow and slowly started carefully started trying to make his way back up that 30 degree angled rock. Meanwhile, another friend by the name of Will had tried to come down and help, couldn't make it, gone back up. Once he saw that he had Gus on his shoulder, came back down just in time because right at that point, Charlie stumbled and fell and Will caught them both. And then the three of them managed to get right back up to the base of Fool's Rock. Meanwhile, they yelled for help. Somebody went and got the reins from the horse and buggy carriage and the halters and tied it all together, lowered it down over the rock, and they successfully got Gus, along with the other two, back to safety. Well, this is one of the most amazing stories in that area of courage, of, of just an incredible story. Everybody knows it. it it's, it's amazing. In fact, uh, Gus, I mean, not Gus, um, Charlie and Will received uh, the Carnegie Gold Medal of Courage Award. And that included an actual gold coin and $2,000. And they used that $2,000 to buy an entire farm with. Pretty nice. Well, I thought about what if we were to use that story of Gus falling off Whiteside Mountain as a parable for our story. Our story. How would we write that parable? In fact, extra credit for anyone who goes this afternoon or sometime this week and actually writes a parable using the story of Gus about our story. How would we write it? How would the different characters be? How would we portray God? How would we portray ourselves? Would God be... After we fall off the rock, 
up at the top of Fool's Rock looking down at us, scowling, saying, what did you do such a stupid thing for? How would we portray God? How would we portray the journey to safety, the rescue? Well, I'd like to look at a few texts of Scripture to help influence how we would write this parable, this metaphor of God's great rescue of us. Let's start off with Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That succinct statement makes it very clear that we are actually in a very dangerous situation, much like Gus was. We are suspended above the potential of death because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not all this, this passage says. Let's start off with verse 21. And this talks about how God has gone about the process of rescuing us from this situation. It says this, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. In other words, this is salvation, this is rescue, this is eternal life that is apart from our ability to perform. This is God's miraculous work to rescue us. But now a, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, it's saying the whole Bible, the Old Testament, has been predicting, has been prophesying, has been saying this reality is coming in the Messiah. Salvation apart from performance, apart from my behavior. This righteousness from God comes through faith, verse 22. In Jesus Christ, to all who believe, so that's how we get this salvation. That's how we get this rescue to take place. We believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's no difference for all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God and, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now I wanna show you, uh, this is Charlie that, that rescued. I forgot to show you his picture. I want to show you something that is, is in the Greek that you just cannot see when you read it through in English. In verse 23 there, when it says, for all have sinned, that is a one point in time statement in the past. That's what the dot represents. It's punctiliar, one point in time. All have sinned. That is our reality. We are hanging from that rhododendron bush dangling 1,800 feet above the valley floor. That is our condition. However, the next two things, there's, there's two parallel phrases that are very, very interesting. There in the end of verse 23, it says, and fall short of the glory of God. In the Greek, that, that means it's, it's phrased in such a way that it says it's, they, we continue to fall short. So this, it's a continuous action of reality in real time. We continue to fall short. So we have sinned and we continue to fall short. That is our reality in the life we're living right now, according to this verse. But that's not all it says. The very next verse in verse 24, there is a parallel continuous action that is taking place. And it says, and are continuously justified freely by his grace through the redemption 
that came by Jesus Christ. So we have two parallel continuous actions taking place simultaneously. As Jesus is rescuing us, we stumble, we fall short, we make mistakes, and simultaneously his righteousness, his grace is covering that in real time as we live. I envision that much like a climbing harness. So let's say God did, Jesus did come down and risk his life and in fact die in order to rescue us, which is in fact the story. What about he comes up to that rhododendron bush and he asks us, would you like me to rescue you? Because he never forces. And we say, absolutely, help me Jesus. And so he helps us off that rhododendron bush and he helps us into this harness, knowing that there's a very high likelihood that we will strip, that we will stumble. And so, as we start climbing back up this mountain, when we do trip and when we do stumble, his grace is sufficient. And he carries us through those times of lowness, of mistake, of challenge, of discouragement. Let's look at chapter seven. It's talking about exactly that sort of situation. Chapter seven, verse 19. Romans, chapter seven, verse 19. This is what it says. This is kind of a summary of the whole last part of Romans chapter seven. It says this, for what I do not, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So that's kind of a summary statement of everything he's talking about there in the last half of Romans chapter seven. It's at times like this when Satan comes along and whispers in our ear saying, what do you think you're doing being a Christian? And you said you're a Christ follower. Look at you. You just failed. You just made a mistake. You just tripped. Look what you have done. You should give up. Why are you even doing this? Because his number one goal is to separate us from our Savior, Jesus Christ. But would you like to know what God thinks and what God says in situations like that? Look at Romans 8 verse 1. And this is the promise we are standing on today. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus says, I've got you. Every time you stumble, every time you misstep, I've got you. Forgiveness is available. My grace is sufficient and righteousness is being given to you in real time as you make those mistakes but that's not all that Romans 8 has to say because Romans 8 describes a certain type of life when we live life in Christ when we choose to step into that harness and allow Jesus Christ to rescue us from this dangerous situation called sin that we're in uh, Romans chapter 8 describes certain attitudes certain actions certain choices that we make as we participate with God's rescue. Let's look, for example, at verse four, Romans eight, verse four. It says this, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. In other words, when we are dangling from the rhododendron bush and Jesus says, would you like me to rescue you? We don't say, oh, I don't know, let me toy around with this a little bit more. We're like, absolutely, what do I do? And we obey every single specific detail of how he tells us to walk and live so that we can be rescued because we are in a dangerous 
situation. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 8 says this, those who live according to their sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You see, God's kingdom is based upon love, and the foundation of love is freedom of choice. God would never force himself upon us, and so he always waits for us to choose, to choose, to choose. This is our role in the salvation process, in the rescue, to choose. Yes, Lord, I want to choose you. I want to be with you. I want to be rescued by you, and this is one area we have choice. What is our mind set on? Those being rescued by Jesus, it says here, our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. Verse 7, Romans 8. This is what it says. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So we can assume those of us being saved by Jesus, we do submit to God's law. Verse 8. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So another characteristic of those, for those of us in Christ, in this harness being rescued by God, is that we have the almighty, powerful Spirit of God living in us. And we are eager to follow the lead of the Spirit day by day, step by step, as he is in the process of rescuing us. Verse 13 then kind of summarizes this section of what life in the harness, life in Christ is like as far as the day-to-day life, the day-to-day details. It says this, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. It's as simple as that. But that's not the end of it. If by the Spirit you put to death the the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Notice Who's putting to death the misdeeds of the body? You're making the choice. I'm making the choice. The Holy Spirit's providing the power. I kind of envision that like I'm in this harness and we have this big crack that we have to step over and I don't have enough energy. I'm weak. I'm, I'm trembling. I, I trip, but I'm choosing to do it. And all of a sudden, I feel God lift me with the harness and lift me over. I think that's kind of how it works. God provides the power. We make the choice. That's what verse 13 is talking about. Sin is such a thing that there's no neutral setting in it. Anybody ever drive a standard car, standard shift car? I know they're less popular these days. I I drove one for about 20 years. And uh, every once in a while, just for fun, I would put it in neutral and coast down a long hill just to see what it was like, see how fast I'd go. I don't know why I do it, just for fun. But sin does not have a neutral setting on it. Either sin is killing and destroying me or I am killing and destroying sin by the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. It's one of those two options. Every day, simultaneously, in real time. Either one of those things are going on. One of those two things. Uh, Many years ago, I I was in a friend's backyard out in California, and he had a a pergola like this with wisteria growing over it. And at the time, I thought, well, this is really kind of cool. It, it smells good, it looks good, it provides good shade, and in California, shade actually makes a difference where there's lower humidity. It, it's nice, it's, it's really cool. Uh, so uh, many years after that, we bought eight acres of land to build a house on, and back in the very back corner of this land, I noticed there was some wisteria growing. 
And I was primarily on a fight with poison ivy at the time, and that, that was my primary focus, trying to kill all the poison ivy, and that fight continues. Um, anyway, um, so I see this wisteria back there, and this pergola just kind of pops in my mind. Ah, maybe if I came back here to the back corner of my property sometime, maybe built a picnic table and a little maybe lattice work, and I could kind of train this, uh, this wisteria and make a nice little, a really cool little spot here. That thought flittered through my mind very, very briefly 15 years ago. I haven't been back out to that back corner much since, a couple times maybe. This winter, I went back to that back corner, and let me tell you what, wisteria everywhere consuming the entire back corner of my property giant vines climbing way up these huge trees choking them to death bringing them down I mean this is what I was planning on using for firewood it's destroying my property and that's kind of what sin is like in our lives either we're destroying it or it's destroying us we can rationalize it away. It kind of looks pretty. It kind of smells good at times. But it's very aggressive and very destructive, which is the only reason why God says when you live life being saved by me, by my power, you'll be putting it to death every day because it keeps growing back. It keeps growing back, trying its best to destroy us. But we have a mighty God who is well capable of destroying it. Speaking of our mighty God, let's talk specifically about our God who's in the process of rescuing us. Let's pick up at verse 26 in Romans chapter 8. It says this, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with great groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Just from these two verses, do you get a sense that the Holy Spirit is working for us, working for our, for our benefit? Do you get that sense from these two verses? It seems to me that God, the Holy Spirit, is doing everything within his power to rescue you and me. It seems that way from this verse. So often, at least for me, I can focus so much on Jesus because he came, he lived, he died. It's pretty clear from his life and his death that he sacrificially 100% loves us. But in my mind, it gets a little bit more fuzzy when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the Father. But this verse tells us unequivocally that the Holy Spirit is working for us. In fact, before Jesus went back to heaven, he promised that that would be the role and the function of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. He called him a helper, the Holy Spirit is for you, is for me, trying to help rescue us. What about the Father? Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those that love him, who have been called according to his purposes. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he, glor he also glorified. What then should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? So often people think of God the Father like he's on top of fool's rock with his arms crossed. Jesus has scrambled down to rescue us. And Jesus is trying to talk him in to letting him rescue us. Not at all. 
The Father is in this as much as Jesus and the Spirit are. It's a team. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working together in perfect unity because they love us. They're for us. They want us in heaven with them. They are on a mission to rescue us. Unfortunately for me, I had to get some dental work done recently. Fortunately for me, I am very good friends with my dentist. Uh, we've been friends for probably 18 to 20 years. Uh, we partnered together in leading youth ministry here in our church many, many years ago. Uh, we know each other's kids. He prayed for my kids before they were born. We go way back. He's a close friend. Um, unfortunately, I had to get two crowns recently put on my back teeth there, and I was feeling quite anxious about that. So he, he offered, he said, Tim, well, you could try this nitrous gas, put this little mask on and breathe deeply and it, it'll help, help the anxiety just kind of dissipate some. So I said, sure, let's go for it. So mask goes on, start feeling dizzy, kind of fuzzy thoughts. Uh, he gets going on his work. About midway through the procedure, he's drilling away and I have this like fuzzy thought process going on and I'm not liking what's going on. I want it to be done and I, I'm just like, this is not good. But then this thought pops in my mind. My dentist is my friend. He is doing what's good for me. I know that he is doing exactly what I need. And the only reason he's doing it is because it's good for me. We need to rest in God in a similar way. Life is not always good this side of heaven. But we have a God who is always good. Who's always for us who's always looking out for our good. We need to hang on to this truth and not let it go. And there are challenges with hanging on to this truth and not letting it go. Many, I'll just mention a couple. Challenge number one, when I have, you have, when anybody has a hurt-filled, pain-filled, broken relationship between themselves and their parents, particularly their dad, it is very difficult to experience and emotionally understand that God is for us, that, that God is on our side, that he, he wants what's good for us. It's just very difficult to do that. And so we just need to acknowledge that fact. And there's no easy, quick cure for that. I would encourage those that have that experience to keep going over the promises that, that clearly state who God is, that he is love, that he's in for us. But, but that's gonna be a journey that we just have to keep surrendering the fear and the hurt and accepting and claiming that God is good, that he is powerful, that he's for us. Another thing that challenges our ability to hang on to this truth that's clearly taught here in Romans chapter eight, that God is for us, he's saving us, he's powerful, he loves us, he's, he's on our side, our painful life circumstances, experiencing difficult loss experiencing things that God could have clearly obviously stopped but he didn't for some reason it's extremely difficult at times to believe that God is this kind of God when I'm experiencing life in such painful ways and yet I would encourage us to choose to hang on to what we just read about God right here in his word that he's loving that he's working for our good and that he's on our side. You know, in our society, it's not real acceptable to, to end up with a conclusion of this, I don't understand. But according to scripture, that's a completely acceptable place to end up. 
my so-and-so just died. I'm hurting deeply. Why did not God intervene? I don't understand. It's okay. There's this passage of scripture that portrays God in a way that I don't see how he could possibly be a God of love. I don't understand. That's okay. It's okay to end up at a place I don't understand. That's a much better place to end up than I don't believe that God is loving or I don't believe that scripture is true. We live in a time where scripture is getting to be less and less the authority. Have you noticed? It seems to me at least that scripture is being displaced by opinion. And the most deadly type of opinion, in my opinion, is when it's inserted in God's word and made to look like that's what scripture is saying. I believe that's a deadly type of opinion. I believe we need to honor God's word and treat it with care. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when I read something in, in scripture that doesn't make sense, that might portray God in a way that's hard for me to put it together with God being this amazing God of love that we're talking about today. And this story in scripture, how does this go together? I would strongly encourage us to choose the option of I don't understand rather than switching and changing around scripture to fit what I believe. That's dangerous territory. This summer, my family got to do a road trip out to Utah, and we were in a little tiny town in southern Utah called Kanab. And I like planning trips. I had been planning this trip, I, I'm embarrassed to say for how long, but many years. And um, so I had it all planned out. I had reworked it many, many, many times. And this was going to be an hour and a half trip from Kanab, Utah, to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, give us plenty of time to see the north rim of the Grand Canyon, then head back over towards Zion. That was the plan for the day. So we were all loaded up, packed out of the hotel, headed towards the north rim of the, uh, the Grand Canyon, and then there's this big digital roadside sign that says, north rim of the Grand Canyon is closed. What? So we do the little math on the phone to figure out how far around to the south rim. It's an extra five hours of driving. What in the world? So I'd like to introduce all the young people to this. This is a map, and believe it or not, you can tell how to get from one place to another with this device. It's pretty amazing. Actually, I'm partial to it. I really enjoy looking through it. But what if we are now parked all beside that digital sign, and I pull open the map to Arizona, and I see five hours. That's crazy too long. Oh, no wonder. The road goes way over to the east and down, and then back to the west. Well, of course, and I pull out my little pen and I draw a line that's more direct to the south rim. And then I try to take my route. I'm here to tell you that would not work so well. And I believe that's what happens when people choose to go with opinion over scripture. It's deadly. And so, I would strongly encourage us to honor Scripture and at the same time hang tightly onto the truth that Scripture teaches that God is love, that He is for us, and He is on a mission 
to rescue us. When my, my children, I have three girls, when my children were young, real, real young, uh, we were at Dollywood up here in Tennessee, and uh, to be quite honest, I was bored. We had spent the entire time on kiddie rides, country fair. We were just hanging out, and I was ready for something more exciting. So I talked to my wife, and we agreed. I would get an hour break, and I would go hit some fun ones. So I went to the Tennessee Tornado, and there was like no line, and I rode it over and over and over and over again about four times in a row. And somewhere in that, that process, I started realizing that I was blacking out every time I went upside down on one of the loops. <laughs> it's like, huh, I don't remember that, that happening before. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, I don't really ever see anybody in their 80s out here. At some point, people stopped doing this. Am I getting old? What's going on here? And so I decided to joyfully go back to the country fair area and enjoy the kiddie ride for the rest of the day. And quite honestly, had not gone back on a ride that went upside down since that day. Until recently, my girls are no longer little and they no longer want to stay in the country fair area. They like doing the rides that go upside down. And they tried to talk me into doing this new ride several years ago called the Wild Eagle. And I told them, um, I'll think about it. No commitment. So I pulled into the parking lot there at Dollywood, and the first thing I noticed is on the top of one of the giant hills in Dollywood is the wild eagle circling around up there, and I, my heart skipped a beat. I was like, uh. Well, of course, my girls went and did it several times, kept asking, Dad, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? I gave several days to think about it, but eventually I finally conceded, okay, I'll do the wild eagle. So I, I got in line, and I was scared. I wasn't looking forward to it. And at least there was a Bible verse. It's themed off a Bible verse. That made me feel good. It was themed off Isaiah 40. It's, it's a good thing. It, it comforted my heart a little bit. But finally, the line, we got up in line all the way up to the place where I chose willingly to sit down in the seat and allow them to put these big old harness, shoulder harness over my shoulders and lock me into place. And off we went. And I have to say, I did survive. There was a few dizzy moments. I survived. And I even went multiple times. And one of the times that's most memorable to me is it was dark. I was just there with one of my daughters. And uh, it was just dusk. And there was a misty rain in the air. And it was Christmas time. And we could just see all the lights of all of Dollywood, all the Christmas lights everywhere as we're soaring. I put my arms out as we're soaring. could feel the mist on our faces. It was peaceful. It was fun. And I believe that is what God is wanting us to experience lifelike here on earth as we rest in his ability to rescue us. Isaiah 40 puts it like this. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, some versions say wait, the meaning is trust, wait expectantly. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the life that God is calling you and me to enjoy here and now as he rescues us because he is capable of taking good care of us and he has amazing things in store 
for our future. So I invite you to choose to sit down in God and rest in Him and His ability to rescue us.